All right, how we doing? Fantastic. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm really glad you're here. Uh, I just want to say something before we start. Um, we are seeing a lot more COVID, just so you know. Um, we're also seeing a lot of respiratory syncytial viruses and some upper respiratory stuff. Let me tell you what I've noticed. I'm just going to throw this out as a caution, okay? People have stopped washing their hands. So just the doctor in me says, wash your hands, okay? Um, so other than that, I'm going to move on to other things. We're in a series, and we've been in this series for several months, and it's all about the Holy Spirit, the uh, sort of forgotten God, the, the third member of the Trinity that often we struggle trying to um, grasp, and we've spent a lot of time looking at who is the Holy Spirit. He's a person. He, he's fully God. He's, he's part of the Trinity. He provides us with spiritual growth and spiritual fruit, and he gives us spiritual gifts. And we've learned over this time that the Holy Spirit glorifies and points to Jesus. Whatever he's doing, Jesus is the focus. And as we mature, spiritual gifts or fruit, rather, grow in us. The, the longer we spend time with the Holy Spirit, the more we begin to manifest the fruit of the Spirit out of that relationship. And the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience. And These aren't things that you decide to do. They're things that become you because you're now being led by the Holy Spirit. In fact, sometimes you'll go, where did that come from? That's not me. How do, what? How, where did that come from? That's the Holy Spirit. Spiritual gifts are a bit different. And we talked about those starting a few weeks ago. Spiritual gifts can be given to any believer at any time. 1 Corinthians 12.1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I don't want you to be uninformed. So that's our goal. We don't want to be uninformed either. And so we've been studying this, 1 Corinthians 12.4. Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. There are a variety of service, but the same Lord. There's a variety of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. The manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given a word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another a word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith through the same Spirit, others gifts of healings, through the same Spirit, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works through all these things, distributing them to each one individually as he wills. And we've talked about how there are nine gifts listed here. This is not an exhaustive list of the things only the Holy Spirit's allowed to do. It's just nine of the total. One word of wisdom, word of knowledge, faith, healing, miracles, prophecy, discerning spirits, tongues, and interpretation of tongues. Last week, we talked about speaking in tongues. And if you haven't heard it, I encourage you to go back and listen, because there's a lot of confusion about a topic that is relatively simple. That there's a difference between speaking in tongues in a human language and praying in tongues in a heavenly language. It's not complicated. The gifts of tongues involve a known human language needed to help people understand the gospel message. And it would not be possible without the gift of the Spirit. Somebody speaking in a language they don't know so that somebody who only knows that language 
can understand. How many of you stayed up last night like I did till 5.15 this morning watching the U.S. win the Golden Golf? No? No? Okay, well, one of the things that was interesting to me was to watch these golfers from all countries all over the world try to communicate about who's going to putt and who's going to do whatever. It, 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 basically, the Holy Spirit solves that problem when it comes to the gospel, speaking in tongues. The grace of tongues, we said, was a prayer language spoken by the Spirit himself, a heavenly discussion between him and the Trinity. Any believer can be used by the Holy Spirit in any moment to speak in a language they don't know. It's that simple. If in a service someone starts talking in a foreign language and no one understands the language, it's really not coming from God. It's not a message from God or for the church. If they're praying in a language and anyone does understand it, it's not from God. Prayer language is between the Spirit and God, and the Scriptures tell us that you don't know what you're saying when you pray. Your mind is off. 1 Corinthians 14. So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anybody know what's said? You'll be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world and none is without meaning. In other words, if you're babbling and nobody knows what you're saying, then, then stop babbling, essentially. If I don't know the meaning of the language, I'll be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. If any speak in a tongue, let there be two or three at most, each in turn, someone interpreting but if there's no one to t interpret, let each of them keep silent. So there are nine gifts listed here. Only the Holy Spirit possesses the gifts. He gives them as he wants to give them, to whom he wants to give them, when he wants to give them, and for what purpose he wants to give them. And it's always given for the purpose of advancing the gospel message. 1 Corinthians 12, 11, but one and the same Spirit works through all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. There's no limit to the number of spiritual gifts that you may experience in your lifetime. You may at different times be used by the Holy Spirit for different gifting. So having a gift expressed through you does not make you the owner of the gift. Let me repeat that. Having a spiritual gift used by God in a moment does not make you the holder and the possessor of that spiritual gift. For instance, there have been times when I have prayed for people and I have felt the healing power of God and they have felt it and miraculous things have happened. I don't have the healing power. I don't know if I'll ever experience it again because it's not mine to own, give, distribute, or promise. It's God's choice. The believer is a passive conduit in the work of the Spirit. We don't make anything happen. We can't make anything happen. All we can be is available, surrendered. God, do whatever you want through me. I'm here. You need to pour healing power out through me to somebody else, I'm all in. You need a word of encouragement to somebody, I'm all in. You need us to, to discern whether something's coming from God or from Satan, I'm all in. But we don't own any gift. We don't possess the gift, and we should not, in my opinion, try to claim it. Claim the gift. 
Yeah, you'll hear people say, I'm a prophet. I'm a healer. What they should say, I think, is I'm a sinner saved by grace who's been used by the Holy Spirit to reveal or heal what he desired in a moment at one point in my life. And that experience glorified Jesus and advanced the gospel. And I was humbled by the experience. I don't deserve to be used that way, but it sure was incredible. And I believe that our gifting, we should never promote ourselves and only glorify the Holy Spirit. When I hear of a prophetic or healing service, I ask myself, if this person, okay, let's just say it, if Benny Hinn didn't show up or got sick, would anybody get healed? Do they believe it takes the presence of Benny Hinn to heal somebody? Who's doing the healing? Is it God or Benny Hinn, or have they confused the two? Stones can cry out, and if God decides he's gonna heal, he'll use whatever believer is standing there when he has time to do it. None of us are more or less able, capable, or available for the Holy Spirit to be used in a moment. Since no one owns the gifts, they can't be given to you by somebody else. You can't be taught to have them. You really can't develop them because to develop them means that you got them partially. The Holy Spirit doesn't do anything partial. Being used by the Holy Spirit through gifting is humble and a worshipful experience. It is not a stamp of maturity. It's not spiritual one-upmanship and it's not supposed to be about pride. You can't turn it on and you can't turn it off. You can't decide when it happens. If you see a healing service at 7 p.m. tonight where a healer is going to show up and heal you, stay home. Study the Bible and pray. Thank God that the Holy Spirit has given you discernment. So we're learning about the spiritual gifts. Today we're going to look at prophecy. I want to give you some background, though. You'll notice that almost every scripture I've quoted has come from Corinthians. And it's very hard to read a Bible and not understand the letter, the people writing, or where that came from. So let's look for a minute at Corinth. Corinth is Las Vegas, New Orleans, San Francisco, and if you added a port city like South Beach, you get the picture. It was the most morally corrupt place on the earth. If you look at it, Corinth is down there um, near Sparta, it's right there on that peninsula. At its height, it had about 200,000 free men and 500,000 slaves, okay? It was a place where many cultures mingled. It was under Roman rule and law, but true worship of many gods was allowed there. In Roman times, the city was notorious as a place of wealth and indulgence. To live as a Corinthian meant to live in luxury and immorality. Corinth is at the junction of the sea routes to the east and west, the land routes from north and south. It's from ancient days one of the most important cities of Greece. It's a huge city with tons of commerce. The ships would come in, they would have to go across this peninsula. Sailors had time to kill, so what happened is they would come, they take their ships up through the on this picture, it would be on the right-hand side, they get to the end of their sea. And now they got a problem. 
They got to get their boat across land to the other sea so they can keep going. Sort of a Panama Canal kind of thing. And so they would go to Corinth, which was down here in the south, and they'd party for four or five days while their boat is literally carried across ground on rails to get to the other side. And they did it both going and coming. So Corinth was a very famous port city with a bunch of craziness going on all the time. Now, if you look at it today, I think I have a picture from today. Is that the next slide? We've solved the problem. Now they just sail right through. At Corinth was the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love, the priestess where more than 1,000 sacred slaves who engaged in prostitution lived at the temple. They were known for ecstatic utterances. They were considered women out of control, issuing loud commands, drawing attention to themselves, encouraging the crowd with seductive, suggestive words. They had long braided hair with costly jewelry, and they were very, uh, let's just say there was little, if any, modesty. Constantly building up emotion in the temple, constantly trying to stir up the people to try to get them on such an emotional high that they could lead them to provocative dancing, prostitution, multiple sexual acts, and an orgy to worship the pagan god Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love and beauty. Now, Paul visited Corinth during his second missionary trip. I'm sure he wanted to go there. Established churches there. He established a church there in 50 A.D., he then went to Ephesus and stayed for three years at Ephesus. And during that time, he started getting reports about Corinth. And what he's hearing starts to freak him out. Because it sounds like this culture that's used to incorporating all gods and all structures and all kinds of worship was trying to bring all that junk into the church. We know that there were four letters that Paul wrote from Ephesus to Corinth. The first two have been lost. So when we say 1 Corinthians, it's actually 3 Corinthians. But we know the first letter dealt with sexual immorality. We can tell from interpreting other letters, the first letter that we don't have had a lot to do with sexual immorality. A huge problem among the new believers in Corinth because they were trying to add Jesus to their pagan practices. They wanted to include the worship of Jesus with other religious practices. The second letter is also lost, but it dealt most likely with sexual immorality, social snobbery, and disunity, it seems like. Church in Corinth had gone wild. Paul's getting letters, and he's freaking out about it. He received a letter from the Corinthians about theological confusion, marriage, divorce, participation in pagan religions, order within worship services, and the bodily resurrection of Christians. So 1 Corinthians is a response Paul wrote, a long letter of correction. It's actually his third letter that we call 1 Corinthians. Primary focus was to try to get control of the craziness. Their worship services were beginning to look like Aphrodite's temple. Loud, ecstatic utterance of tongues that sounded like gibberish. Women adorned and dressed to draw attention to themselves. Seductive dancing with women trying to lead the services. 
No focus on unity, new believers. It's all about me and my wants and my desires. Tongues had become prominent. Prophetic utterances that weren't from God had become prominent. And the reason is those two things draw attention to me. If I want people to pay attention to me, I need to do the demonstrable gifts. Paul wrote a stern letter to remind them that the root of much immorality and idolatry in Corinth was a lack of appreciation for the holiness of God. God's people were to be set apart, he said. A people marked off from their culture. In addition, the dwelling of God's spirit within each believer and the unity that believers had with each other, having been resurrected with Christ, was to create a clean break from the impurity and disgusting things that were going on in their culture. It's in Corinthians that Paul talks about, be set apart. Love is important, it's the most important, real love. Be set apart, embrace who you are. And so context is critical to our understanding today. 1 Corinthians 12, Paul teaches about the spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 13, he talks about how love is the most important. And now in 1 Corinthians 14, he turns to how these giftings are supposed to be used in public worship services. The context of this passage is all about controlling what's happening in God's house, to create an environment where God can be seen by those seeking. Paul clearly defines the purpose of this passage. 1 Corinthians 14, 12. So with yourselves, since you are eager for the manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. In other words, don't try to build yourself up. Don't try to point to yourself. Focus on building everybody else up. Focus on building the church. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. For God is not a God of confusion, but peace. He's saying, look, if people walked into the worship services, they're so crazy, they think our God is crazy. All things should be done decently and in order. Paul tells them, look, your church is under attack. Build it up. Your worship services should not be a circus. Peace, not confusion. All things done decently and in order. Now, the church in Corinth is sadly not a lot different from some churches here today. They've allowed cultural trends to malign the church. The church reflects more culture than God. God's holiness becomes absent. The message becomes confusing. There's disorder instead of peace. Sadly, they use the presence of the Holy Spirit as the reason the services are out of control. A lot of people don't like reading Corinthians because it's in Corinthians where Paul seems to correct women. And he tends to get this reputation of being a chauvinist. And I can just tell you, if you believe that, you haven't read the rest of his letters. Paul had a problem in Corinth. He's a pastor addressing his church. He is reprimanding them for the way they're allowing women to behave in church. He's not making a global statement about all women for all time. There's a problem in Corinth. But he clearly says that when the Holy Spirit is active, there's a sense of peace and order and stability. 
When culture attacks your church, he says, build up the body of believers. He's going to teach about bodybuilding, particularly in the setting of the public worship service. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 14, if you want to head that way. Pursue love, he says, and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. That's interesting. Spiritual gift, a word of prophecy. We're told to earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially the ability to prophesy. Prophecy. Mind usually dumps, jumps to predicting the future. We think of Nostradamus or the Mayan calendar or others who think they can tell the future. Our culture moves in throngs towards psychics and mystics and fortune tellers and psychic hotlines in America. Hotlines alone for psychics bring in over $400 million a year. But besides psychics, humans have an insatiable appetite to try to find a sense of peace. To try to find someone who can predict their future so they can feel like they might have control over it. There are many options, card reading, astrology, palm reading, horoscopes, Ouija boards, communicating with dead spirits, eight ball, good luck charms. Many claim skills in readings. Some claim to predict the future by interpreting the way a, roast, a, a rooster picks up grain. Patterns of melting or dripping wax by gazing into a fire, looking into crystals or a crystal ball, even tea leaves and coffee grounds. Some seem harmless, magic eight balls, targeted at children. Girls made these little paper things that no matter how you move them, said that you weren't their girlfriend, boyfriend. I mean, it was like, oh, hold on. No, I don't like you. Let me try again. No, I still don't like you. Okay. Fortune cookies, palm readings, horoscopes. They seem harmless. God calls them sin. Do not turn to mediums or necromancers, people who talk to the dead. Do not seek them out, and so make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. Let me tell you a story about Manasseh. He was an evil king. And he built altars for the Lord of heaven in the two courts of the house of God. And he burned his sons, his offerings, in the valley of the son of Hinnom, which is where we get the word hell. And he used fortune-telling and omens and sorcery, and he dealt with mediums and necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Leviticus 26, if a person turns to mediums and necromancers whoring after them, I will set my face against that person and cut him off from among his people. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy for I am the Lord your God. In other words, don't forget whose you are because we don't do this. Note that in all these passages, God is really angry. Why? Why does this bother God so much? Just reading a horoscope doesn't mean anything. Well, because seeking anything about your future apart from God violates the first and second commandment. You shall have no other gods before me and you'll have no idols. If you want to know the future, pray to the one who holds it. He'll tell you everything you need to know. 
Anything less is a horrible sin, and no matter how harmless it seems, very damaging. Look at God's response to Saul. So Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord, and he consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord, therefore the Lord put him to death and then turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. The true prophet Isaiah had warned them, you are wearied with your many counsels, let them stand forth and save you. Those who divide the heavens, who gaze at the stars, who at the new moons make known what shall come upon you. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? Years ago, we had a small group at our house that wasn't actually that small, but basically it started out with, I just invited a bunch of people. Uh, Buddhists, Muslims, Jewish, Christians, atheists, agnostics, everything in between. Why don't you just come to our house, have some coffee? We're going to talk about what the book of John says. Not asking you to believe it. Not asking you to say it's God's truth. I'm just letting you know, if you want to know what Christians believe about God, you'll learn it in the book of John. We're just going to study it. And they would come. One day, there's a knock on the door, and one of the ladies was standing there, and she had these boxes, I mean, huge boxes. And they're full of tarot cards and different books and horoscopes and gyroscopes and all kinds of oil. I mean, it was just crazy stuff on my front door. And my first thought was, that is not coming into my house. And she said, look, I, I have got a problem. I said, what's your problem? She goes, I, I believe in Jesus now. And I don't know what to do with this stuff. And so I said, well, she said, so I called the other pastor he said to bring it to your house, you'd know what to do. <laughs> Jeff Wilson, for those who know him. And I said, well, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna take all this stuff out to the backyard. And when the small group showed up that night, we created a bonfire. And we burned the crap out of that stuff. Acts 19, 18. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. Wasn't my idea. And they contained, counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. That's a lot of stuff. That was before Amazon. Now, if you've practiced in any of these practices today or in the past, no matter how harmless you think they were, you need to confess that as a sin. Denounce the activity that's not of God. Repent and ask God to forgive you that you sought counsel about your future from somebody other than him. Be careful with physicians. Sometimes we put more faith in the word of a physician than in the word of God. If you're sick and you need healing, it's coming from God. He may work through man, maybe a doctor, maybe a nurse, but don't place your faith or bet your future on man. God's the only one that holds it. I see it all the time. If I can just get to this doctor in this place, I'll be healed. No. When you get to the great physician on your knees, he can decide to heal you or not, and if he doesn't, it's okay, because you know who you are and you know where you're going. 
Look at what happens in the early church in Acts. They burned all their stuff, and then look at the next verse. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. If you're doing some of this stuff, no matter how harmless it is, and you're not advancing in your life towards God, confess it and let the word of God advance and prevail mightily in your life. When people want to come clean with God, he's waiting for you. If you feel stalled with God, sometimes it's the overlooked sins that are holding you back. God never wants us to go to any source other than him. Parents, you know how this feels, right? You raise your kids, you pray for them, you pray over them, you teach them, you guide them, you're up every night, you sacrifice for them, you worry about them, you hope everything works out for them, you've been thinking about their future before they even existed. You love them more than they will ever know. You have what they lack, wisdom and experience. In many ways, you've kind of seen their future. You know what they're going to face. And your advice comes from a heart of selfless love. Your motive is solely their best long-term interest. You give yourself up for them. Then one day around age 12, they have a decision to make about their future. And rather than turning to you, they go to their friend who has sacrificed nothing, has no real vested interest in their future, and likely doesn't even truly love them. And this teenager with all the worldly experience of a prepubescent adolescent seems to have more influence in your child's life than you do and is now the quoted authority source for your child regarding truth. There seems to be an age where peer pressure starts to try to trump parental love. You loved, raised, guarded, prayed, planned, and then when they really need you, they turn to some cheap substitute 12-year-old with early acne. We turn anywhere but we, regard, we don't regard the people that are most put in our lives to help guide us. If the source is not God, we have to reject it because that's exactly how God feels. I loved you before you were born. I know your future. I mean, I really know it. Don't turn to some other fake thing. I'm right here. No one's going to give you better advice. No one's going to guide you better. No one's going to protect you from the pitfalls of life. And no one's going to do it selfishly, uh, unselfishly, and with such love as I am. That's why God gets so offended when we turn to this stupid stuff. There are three prophecies or, or words from God that we are to pay attention to. Okay? And we're going to start talking about what prophecy is in a minute. Three things that come from God that help you look at your future. First, the Old Testament prophets. They were sent by God to tell people what the future was going to hold. Second, Jesus himself. He's God. He knows what the future holds. Third, and only third, and the only one left, is a word of prophecy from the Holy Spirit. The source on all three is God. Okay? The Old Testament prophets, people allowed, were allowed to be used by God as his voice piece to the Jewish people. 
They were empowered by God. They spoke only for God. They started their message with something like, thus says the Lord, or something similar. The message being, what I'm about to say is not for me. God is speaking through me. Prophets in the Bible included Samuel and Daniel and Jeremiah and Isaiah and Nathan, Ezekiel, Jonah, and many others. They didn't turn to stars or Ouija boards or tarot cards. The only source of truth was God himself. Deuteronomy 18.20, but the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. There weren't any mediocre prophets. You were either speaking for God or you were not. Now, if the prophet is speaking about something that's going to occur in the future that couldn't be validated, if you'll notice in scriptures, those prophecies are almost always affiliated with an immediate miracle of some sort that validates that it's from God. In other words, this may not come true for years and years, but God stamps it with his authority. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. Presumptuously, you need not be afraid of him. Now note the real prophets that you should be afraid of. They were sending the correction, the rebuke to the Jewish people. Old Testament prophets never showed up and said, hey, good job. Their message was always, stop doing what you're doing. That's one of the ways you knew it was from God. Stop it. The next source that is valid is Jesus. It's called a prophet. It's God. Whatever he says is God. Whatever he says is as good as Scripture because it is Scripture. He's God. So when he speaks, his words were true, every one of them. He's the Word of God, the Word, the essence of God. John said, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus was a prophet in the sense that every word he said was from God. And then Jesus leaves. There's no source of truth left. How are God's people going to know what they're supposed to do? Scriptures haven't been written. There's nothing. God says, I'm going to give you a spiritual gift of a word of prophecy. It's the Holy Spirit, God, speaking through us. Each member of the Trinity speaks to us. God the Father spoke through the prophets. Jesus himself spoke through his own words. The Gospels recurred the words of the Holy Spirit through the gift of prophecy. A word of prophecy. We're going to talk about this a little bit. Often you'll have somebody come up to you and say, I have a word of prophecy for you. God has given me a prophetic word for you. I've been listening to God and he wants me to tell you something. Prophecy is speaking forth the mind and heart of God as revealed by the Holy Scriptures. Prophecy means hearing what God is saying and communicating that revelation to either a church or a person as the Holy Spirit determines at an appropriate time in an appropriate manner. A message of encouragement from God delivered through a human vessel to another person or persons. It's important to note what a word of prophecy is not. Okay, a word of prophecy is not discouragement. It's not correction. It's not a rebuke. It's not judgment. It's not condemnation. The spiritual gift of the word of prophecy, unlike the Old Testament warnings, 
are words of encouragement and comfort only. If God is sending you a message through somebody else, we'll talk about that in a minute, that message has to be something that encourages you, builds you up, inspires you to move closer to Jesus. The Holy Spirit flowing through us to encourage one another, literally putting courage into someone else. Paul said it this way. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. A word from God is gonna be one of those three things. It's gonna be upbuilding, encouraging, or consolation. The first question to ask to test a word of prophecy is this. Did this prophecy encourage or build me up? Second question is, does it align with what I know to be true in Scripture? Because a word of prophecy always stands under the word of God. Okay, if anybody tries to give you a word of prophecy that is contrary to God's word, it's not a word of prophecy. Three benefits, upbuilding, encouraging, and consolation. Strengthen, encourage, and comfort. When someone offers a word of prophecy, we have to compare it to Scripture, but there's a difference, okay? Scriptures are inspired by God. In other words, inspiration means that although God's word written down came to us through humans, 40-something humans over 1,500 years, most never met each other, they each sat down to write what we now call the Scriptures, okay? Humans wrote them. It carries their personality. It carries their flair. It's not a robot. You can tell that Peter approaches life differently than John does. Their personalities are allowed to reflect in Scripture, but the message is from God. It's supernaturally protected from any errors or contamination. The words written in the original manuscripts of the Bible are the actual words God intended, and God did not allow human scribes to make mistakes when it came to writing down his message. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. That's why nowhere in Scripture are you told to test Scripture. You're told to use the Bible to interpret Scripture, not to test it. Why? Because it's God's Word, and He tells us it doesn't need to be tested. It, it's, he assures us it's reliable. A word of prophecy is revealed by God, but not inspired by God. Let me make sure we get this right, okay? The scriptures, when God says, write this down, it's his words, okay? Prophecy is inspired by God, but not guaranteed to be accurate. Humans can mess it up, and we often do. Prophetic revelation is a now word, specific direction for a specific situation. Like manna, it is only for today, Scripture, on the other hand, is eternal, never changes, and will stand long after everything is gone. Okay? Prophecy also differs from Scripture in its reliability. A prophetic revelation is given to you by a fallible human who may be misinterpreting. It's not complete. 1 Corinthians 13.8, love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they'll cease. For, as for knowledge, it will pass away. For now we know in part and we prophesy in part. 
But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. We prophesy in part. A prophetic word is incomplete. It's almost never a full explanation, just a thought, just an idea, a piece of the puzzle that you probably don't understand. In my experience, when somebody gives me a prophetic word, I have no clue what it means. It's usually from God. If it's a trumped up word, it's usually not. Let me give an example. I went back and looked at my sermons, March 2014. So that was seven, I don't know how many years ago. I was doing a series and I was at another church and I was teaching about what it means to hear from God as you're studying the Bible or whatever. And what I was saying was that often you don't get a whole explanation, you get a word. And the word really means nothing. You're like, what in the world does that mean? And so you go to God and you say, God, is this from you? First thing you should do when somebody gives you a prophetic word is thank them, thank you. Don't make any comments. Go take it to God. God, is this from you or not? Okay, it's that simple. Don't act on it, don't believe it, don't own it. Just take it to God. He'll tell you what to do with it. The Bible tells us that prophecy must always be tested. Let two or three prophets speak and let others weigh what is said. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what's good. In our church, elders and pastors test a word of prophecy. If people come up to say, hey, I have a word for the congregation. No, you have a word for the elders and pastors first. Then we'll let you speak, or we will speak, or you will speak to the congregation once God confirms that what you're saying is from him. Why? Because there are people in the congregation who are not spiritually mature. And they don't know how to separate. A man came up from, in fact, I'll tell you, in the history of this church, it happened. Years ago, it almost killed this church. I won't go into the details, but somebody gave a prophetic word to the church that was from Satan. Crazy story, I don't want to get into it long before my time and I think long before Ed's time. With all that understood, let's go back to Corinth. Just remember the context. Public worship service, crazy town of Corinth, totally out of control, two letters of warning have been written. But before we go too far, because this is a long topic, we're going to cover it again next week, I want to finish today by addressing one more related issue. The difference between prophecy and a prophet. We often throw those terms around as if they're the same. They are not. They're not interchangeable. Prophecy, as we've discussed, is an encouraging word, a comforting word, to build up the body of believers. It's a love note from God, spoken through the Holy Spirit, through his people, through your church family, and his message. We're passive participants. God's using our voice to speak to somebody else about Jesus' love. Sometimes you just need God to say, you know what, I know. I know. And every once in a while, somebody will come up to you and they'll say, I have a word for you. He knows. See, I think we can go through anything in life if we just know that God knows. God, you know about this, right? Okay. I need to be encouraged because I'm discouraged. I need to be filled up. I need somebody to come alongside me and help hold me up. That's what prophecy is for. 
God using our voice box to speak to other people in their time of need. Any of us can be used at any time to share a word from God. We can tell somebody, I think this is from God. When I have a word for somebody, I tell them, look, I'm not saying this. This might be from God. I just feel it. I'm going to tell you. You figure out what to do with it. You see, if you believe you have a prophetic word, okay, and God wants you to share it with somebody, share it with them in love and, and, and make sure it's encouraging. Because it's encouraging, it's not comforting, it's not a prophetic word. When you finish talking to somebody, they should feel better, not worse. It's never a rebuke, okay? You don't, God takes care of that stuff. So here's the deal. You may be used at times to share a word with another believer. Your job is to share the word, not to interpret it, not to add to it, not to try to help them understand what it means. You are simply a voice box with a message from God that starts and stops, and you don't need to add to it. A prophet is one who speaks for God and reveals new truth or his truth. In the Old Testament, early church, these people spoke for God and revealed new truth. Now, the problem is that that idea of new truth, the early church um, had people uh, that were apostles and prophets and as the New Testament had not been written yet, they were often ones that would tell the future, just like they had in the Old Testament. They would reveal truths about God. While God intended for prophecy to be a gift to us to encourage and build us up, Satan has sent false prophets into the world to tear down the church. Sadly, I've experienced several false prophets during my tenure as lead pastor. Each time they almost destroyed the church, and clearly struck amazing blows to church unity. Matthew 7, 15, beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravening wolves. Notice he doesn't say beware of false prophecies. Okay, beware of false prophets. False prophecies are okay, you'll sort through those. And many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and they'll show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive even the very elect. One of the things I love to do is when it starts getting into the warnings of God, I like to go to the King James because it sounds cool. I'm serious. But there were false prophets among you people, even as there will be false teachers among you who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, denying the Lord that brought them and bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Beloved, believe not every spirit. Try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are going out into the world. We have warning after warning after warning of false prophets coming into the church and attacking the church from the outside. That is not prophecy. It's not the prophetic word from the Holy Spirit. These are people who are claiming to speak for God. As a leader, as a whatever, this is, this is what I say that God wants you to do now. There are two categories. False prophets that come from outside the church, and they really are no danger to us. 
It's the inside the church people that are really concerning, the wolves in sheep's clothing, because they're hard to sort out. There are people sent to churches by Satan to destroy the church. Elders are like shepherds. Our job is to protect the flock. Paul told the Ephesian elders that men would rise up from their own myths and draw away many with false doctrines. And that the ones the church must be of and able to identify before they cause havoc. The Bible teaches us how to recognize false prophets and apostles and teachers. The main reason why there are so many false prophets in the churches today is because we've lost the ability to exercise spiritual discernment in the church. We should know, as soon as somebody starts talking foolishness, we should know the word of God well enough to go, no, that's not no. It baffles me how so many prominent pastors allow their congregation to be hoodwinked by traveling con men, literally, who are sent there by Satan to destroy their church and claim to have the authority of God because they're a prophet. Nothing more than imposters looking for quick cash from gullible Christians. Another reason that Christians are so hungry for revelations outside of God's word, these personal revelations, is they're more concerned about their own lives than the kingdom of God. Sheep who leave the protection of the fold and make themselves open prey to these wolves. The Bible tells us to deny ourselves and take up our cross, follow Christ. And if God's will is not enough for you and you gotta go seek something else, you're exactly what the wolf in sheep's clothing is looking for. He told Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but have itching ears. They'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and they'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Note that Timothy is instructed to preach the word and the word only. Not told to go preach his opinions. He's not told to go make up how he thinks life should be or what he thinks the scripture should say. You preach the word and stand back. People will want something different though, Paul tells them. You wanna shrink a church? Teach the word. Trust me, I've done it, I'm like an expert. Literally, because at some point you're gonna teach something that people don't wanna hear and don't wanna face. It's incredible to me. And they'll turn to those who don't preach the word to get what they want. There do not appear to be prophets today as there were in the New Testament period. But two concessions we need to pay attention to. First, God can speak through people in any way he wants. He can reveal information at certain times to certain people. But the other thing you gotta remember is God has already told us what's gonna happen in Scripture. Okay, we don't need to add to that. We don't need more than that. But here's what we often misinterpret. God's truth is desperately needed today in our culture. And when teachers teach God's truth, like I'll have people come up to me and go, you have the gift of prophecy. Why? Well, because your series on end times, it's, it's right on. I said, well, those aren't my words, that's scripture. I'm not a prophet, I'm a teacher. I don't have the gift of prophecy. I'm reading to you the prophecy that God gave to John. We're so eager to follow people. 
Well, we should be following God. It just happens that way. It makes no sense to me. How do we discern false prophets? And I'll, I'll finish with this. Jesus said, beware of false prophets who come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruit. This is not hard, by the way. It doesn't take an enormous amount of spiritual discernment to tell the difference between a true teacher and a false teacher, a true prophet and a false prophet. Every healthy tree bears good fruit. Diseased tree bears bad fruit. Every tree that's not bear good fruits cut down, thrown in the fire. You'll recognize them by their fruits. You see, if somebody comes into your congregation and says, I'm a prophet of God, I can just tell you, chances are they're not. But what you need to tell them is, great, have a seat. Have a seat, join us, become part of our congregation. Over time, we'll validate that or not. And after a time of getting to know you and examining your life and seeing how you're driven, we'll be able to see the fruit in your life and we'll know whether you're a true prophet or a false prophet. And a true prophet would go, great, that's exactly what we should do. And a false prophet would go, no, no. You see, I was sent here to destroy you guys. And if you guys don't let me destroy you, you gotta go somewhere else. You have to be able to discern this. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. When you see somebody who's kind, gentle, has self-control, compassion, patience, and they're telling you that there's a message or that God's word is whatever, pay attention to their lives. It's really this simple. They can hide who they are for quite a while. You have to pay attention. You have to watch. You have to listen to what they say. How do you know? Well, the works of the flesh are evident. Now, let me just, before we do this, when people come into that door and say they're a prophet or they're a holy person, whatever it is, the fact that they claim it probably means they're not. However, Scripture tells us there's going to be one of two groups. Nobody's in the middle. One of two groups. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. The other group is this, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. One of the first things a false prophet will do when they come to your church is try to split the church. Try to start rumors about the pastor, about leadership, about other churches and what they're doing, about what this church should be doing. They were sent by God to fix the church. No, you weren't. In fact, the gates of hell were put up to keep you from doing what you're trying to do. I'll cut to the chase for you. If the focus is on themselves, their gifts, or their need for money, run. Scriptures are clear that prophets and teachers of the law are to be humble servants of God, not seeking for themselves. Here's how you really know, though. You got the Holy Spirit in you. He's going to start vibrating like a pager going off. Now, you'll start to want to dismiss it because you're hearing what you want to hear because you have itchy ears too. But that spiritual pager is going off. And inside, you're going, this is not. But they're telling you what you want to hear. But, this is, but they're telling you what you want to hear. You get uneasy. You'll have a deep sense that this isn't right because usually it's something too good to be true.
Oh, that church won't let you do that? Oh, we welcome that here. How judgmental. Welcome, come, bring your friends. Y'all can all do that here too, and we'll worship Jesus and ignore the first few chapters of Romans. They play on your emotions and they twist scripture to try to entice you. If you don't know scripture, this is what I tell you guys all the time, I can't learn it for you. I can teach it to you. I can show you how to recognize false teaching, but you've gotta be in the word to be able to know the truth. Now here's another clue for you. The actions of the spirit go against your nature. Okay, we all have a fallen nature. We all know what we wanna do, right? Usually the things of God are telling us not to do what it is we inherently wanna do. And when people come to me and say, you know what, God, it's amazing. God spoke to me and said I should run off with my secretary. No, that wasn't God. Because the things of God don't make sense to fallen man, right? So when what you want that you didn't think God would like suddenly lines up with what God wants, you're probably not getting the best advice. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Spiritual person judges all things, but he himself is to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. The spirit in you will tell you whether something's of God or not. I promise. If you just turn your itchy ears off and ask God to reveal his truth, you will feel inside of you, run. This is not me. We have the mind of Christ. He will guide us from false teachers and prophets. Problem is, many of us are so focused on ourselves and what we want that we're not listening to the Spirit. Next week, we're gonna continue to unpack the spiritual gift of prophecy. It's a powerful gift. An incredible blessing to the church and one we're gonna embrace together. Let's pray. God, I thank you that your word is clear, but we're obviously not. I don't think the church has changed much since the first century still trying to discern spirits, still trying to figure out truth, still trying to protect the church from false teachers. But God, we have your word. We have a mind and time and the ability to study and learn and pray and listen. And God, my prayer is that all of us just begin to focus more on the Holy Spirit, what he wants us to do, to begin to trust him to lead us and guide us. Stop looking at the world for answers to the world. They don't have them. We've got to turn our eyes vertically to you. Stop looking for man's solutions to problems. So God, forgive us when we trust man more than you. Forgive us when we think we have all the answers. We love you, we trust you, and we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.